following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number nine on Morgoth's Ring. Tonight is an extremely exciting session because we are going to start talking about the laws and customs among the Eldar, the essay that Tolkien wrote. This is now, again, remember, late 50s, so we're 40 years after his original stories that he was writing back in the Book of Lost Tales. And for really the first time, he is... Um, starting to uh, uh, really kind of do this sort of world building that Tolkien is kind of most famous for, right? I mean, the thing that everybody always, you know, notes about Tolkien is how deep his world is and how thoroughly realized it is. And yet, it never was with regard to elves, really. Not not, not, not truly, Um there's very little that sort of te- because and and there's good reason for this right there's very little that sort of told us what it was like to be an elf you know what elves thought exactly and again there's good reasons for that his stories had been told by and large from the outside right even the original book of lost tales concept the idea of the human mariner you know who re- ends up at toleresia uh and who um is told the stories he's getting them from the elves firsthand um but he's still the transmitter of the stories, right? And so they're still, it's not really told from their point of view. Um, and But this is one of the most pronounced moments, uh, the most pronounced examples of, what, of one of the main things we've been talking about, been looking at throughout this book, and that is the spirit with which he is returning to the Silmarillion, Right. Um, how it is that he is wanting to be, to reconcile it, not just with the facts, right? Not just with the details, but with the spirit, with the kind of story, with the kind of narrative that the Lord of the Rings is. And it is prompting him uh, to answer questions. The story as it's emerging here, as he's revising it, is prompting him to ask and to answer questions uh, that he never really seems to have answered before. And even to return to some questions and maybe even reverse himself on some decisions that he's made about elves. Uh, and of course, sprinkled through here are just a, a, a liberal dose of references that he has made to things that never got explained in which he's now going back and, and providing, um, you know, inventing some explanations for really just fascinating stuff. I'm fascinated by literally everything uh, in the laws and history of the Eldar. I think this is absolutely wonderful. And I have like 23 slides. So let's see how far we can get, even though it's not all that long. Still, there's so much there. Holy cow. Um, uh, Even getting down eventually, Matt, though again, we're talking like slide 22 here, uh, to his finally answering the question, that people ask all the time, which is, why is Sauron called the Necromancer? And what exactly does it mean, right? Like, when he was, like, necromanting, what was he doing, right? What was actually going on there? Um, uh, anyway, awesome. So, let's jump right into it after two quick, quick things. First, two reminders. Reminder number one, 
Don't forget, Signum Path Program, our June courses start in just under two weeks, so there's still time to enroll in our June classes. Of course, we have classes in July and August as well, um, but I definitely wanted to commend those to you. Path.signumuniversity.org. Uh, please do check it out. Tell folks about it. It's our brand new program, which I am super excited about. So just to remind you about that. Secondly, I wanted to remind you uh, that the next stage of the... Well, this might be informing rather than reminding... I wanted to remind you about the next election, categorically, uh, for our next book after Morgoth's Ring. Um, and uh, to tell you, if you haven't gotten the email yet, uh, that uh, you should have received, if you're a member of the Council of the Wise, you should have received an email uh, that says, uh, that lists our total nominees uh, for the next book. And now it is down to electing uh, the finalist, the, the, the pool of finalists. So I'm... Uh, this is always, uh, I was scanning through the list, some really excellent choices in that list, I have to say. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see. I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to name any names because I wouldn't want to bias the proceedings. Uh, but um, <laughs> Kevin wants to know if there's any I would veto. Kevin, you were just burning to know what books I would veto. I know this is, this is, uh, no, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to say, <laughs> I'm not going to say whether there are any on the list that I would veto. Um, but, uh, there were certainly many that I was very excited to see. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, this is always, this is always a fun time. Um, so, uh, yeah, awesome. Okay. Um, so let's, um, uh, Let's jump straight into things here. So, and, and there are instructions in the email. You can go to the forum and uh, do your voting and stuff. Uh, uh, just check your email. If you're on the Council of the Wise and you don't have an email, um, then send us, an, send us a, a message. Send us a, something at info at signumu.org, and we'll make sure to get you connected. Um, uh, and the second thing is, uh, if you are not a member of the Council of Wise and would like to be, there's always time to join. Members of the Council of Wise are just the wise supporters of Signum University, people who donate at least $100 a year uh, you know, during the course of the given year uh, to support Signum and our annual fund. Uh, and uh, we uh, are so grateful to all of our supporters. So there's always time to join the Council of the Wise. Um, just make a gift uh, to, uh, uh, to Signum. You can find that right on our webpage, the, the, the link to our donation form, uh, and uh, we'll connect you right in. Uh, if it happens soon enough, maybe even in time for this vote. We'll see. All right. Let us, without any further preamble, jump straight in. Okay. So, okay, I said without further preamble, but we do have a preamble. We have Alfwina's preamble. Um, this was labeled. So these two paragraphs were bracketed and labeled Alfwina's preamble uh, in Tolkien's text. And Christopher confessed to some puzzlement about why they were so labeled. Um, and I am 100% in agreement with Christopher's puzzlement uh, on this point. Alfwina's preamble. The Eldar grew in bodily form slower than men, but in mind more swiftly. They learned to speak before they were one year old, and in the same time they learned to walk and to dance, for if their wills came soon to the mastery of sorry, for their wills came soon to the mastery of their bodies. Nonetheless, there was less difference between the two kindreds, elves and men, in early youth, and a man who watched elf children at play might well have believed that they were the children of men of some fair and happy people. 
For in their early days, elf children delighted still in the world about them, and the fire of their spirit had not consumed them, and the burden of memory was still light upon them. This same watcher might indeed have wondered at the small limbs and stature of these children, judging, by their, judging their age by their skill in words and grace in motion. For at the end of the third year, mortal children began to outstrip the elves, hastening on to a full stature, while the elves lingered in the first spring of childhood. Children of men might reach their full height, while Eldar of the same age were still in body like to mortals of no more than seven years. Not until the fiftieth year did the Eldar attain the stature and shape in which their lives would afterwards endure, and, some, and for some a hundred years would pass before they were full grown. All right. Um, so many interesting things here. Um, okay. So... Golly, where even to begin? Um, first of all, note... One of the fundamental principles that Tolkien is most interested in, or to say the same thing a different way, one of the primary tools that he uses in his explanations about almost everything, right, um, is the relationship between the minds and the bodies, essentially, of elves. Uh, in fact, as you can see, I mean, you know, reading through the laws and customs of the Eldar, almost everything here ultimately comes down to, or again, you can think of it as Tolkien thinking through different implications of the relationship between the Fea and the Hroa, the spirit and the body of the elves. Um, so we see him addressing some of these really basic things um, that he never really articulated before. Well, hard to say whether he didn't articulate them or whether they were not a glimmer in his mind at all, right? That's always a little bit hard to say. Um, but clearly, while on the one hand, Tolkien was always interested in the difference between elves and men, right? Um, the idea of, you know, sort of turning the one-body problem of, you know, human history into the two-body problem, right? That You know, that uh, imagining, which, you know, you remember when we did Out of the Silent Planet a little while back, um, we saw Lewis also very interested in the question of what would a planet with more than one species of now look like, right? With If there are multiple rational species, how would that work? Um, how might a society that grew up with several quite different rational species interacting, rather than just the one single rational species, uh, which, so far as we understand, we have on Earth, I suppose, not counting the dolphins and the mice. Uh, but anyway, um, that's um, something like that, not envisioned in the way that Lewis did, um, but something like that seemed always to be a part of what Tolkien's imagination was delighting in from the beginning, right? Let's imagine the history of the world as a two-body problem, right? Um, that is, um, imagine that there are these two separate rational species with, from the beginning, right, one of the things that was specified uh, from the beginning as the, the primary determining difference 
uh, distinguishing feature, that is to say, between these two rational species, rather than, you know, having the, the Hrasa on the one hand, right, and the, and the Saroni on the other hand, and the Fifiltrigi, all of whom are very different in various, have, very, have differences of mind, differences of body, right, and differences of temperament. Instead of imagining a situation like that, right, Tolkien has taken the elves and the men who are very similar in many ways with the one key difference. And ultimately, that's how their minds and bodies are related to each other, right? Um, the one die within this world and their spirits depart and the others don't. That's been the fact from the beginning, right? But, but what does that mean? Um, it's an interesting fact that within the world of the stories, like within the world of the Silmarillion stories, humans are treated like the mystery, right? Because it's, it's kind of vaguely from an elvish point of view, um, even though, as I've said, it doesn't really give like a first person elvish point of view, what it's what it's like to be an elf, right? What it feels like, what they experience exactly. We don't get that kind of first hand account of elvishness in the same way that we do get something closer to a first hand account of the Hobbit point of view, for instance, from the Hobbit in The Lord of the Rings. Neither one of those are a first person account, of course, but the narrator is sufficiently close to the Hobbits that we do begin to understand and to feel how they look at the world. Right. We certainly don't get that same impression. We, we're not left feeling as well acquainted with elves after reading the Silmarillion as we are with hobbits after reading the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, if you see what I mean. So that's what I'm saying. We haven't gotten to this point. And yet the general frame, framework has been a sort of elvish framework so that, you know, like what happens to humans after they die is one of the big mysteries. Like, who knows? Right. What could that possibly be? And it's super weird that they just live for this tiny brief lifespan and die and then their spirits, something happens to them and we don't know, right? But despite that, despite the fact that a lot of the stories have that established as their sort of framework that what happens to humans is the mystery, nevertheless, how things work with elves is quite mysterious. Um, mysterious in the sense of Tolkien never describes it, never explains it. He says things about it, right? And we can see him evoking some of this vocabulary. If you look at the end of that first paragraph there. For in their early days, elf children delighted still in the world about them, and the fire of their spirit had not consumed them, and the, and the burden of memory was still light upon them. I mean, there's a lot there, right? The fire of their spirit had not consumed them? Whoa, okay, that's pretty heavy. Right? And the burden of memory was still light upon them. So we have these two concepts that in some sense, the fire of their spirit consumes them. And in another sense, the burden of memory becomes heavy on them as they move forward. Right? And references have been made to these kinds of things before. Like these are, these are the sorts of things that have been put out there either in conversation by elves or um, in reference to elves, whether it be particular elves. I mean, certainly when you talk about being consumed by the fire of your spirit, I don't know about you, but that always makes me think of Feanor, right? Who, um, whose spirit consumed himself quite spectacularly, right? And unusually such that he, his body turned to ash uh, as his spirit departed it. Um, uh, and his mom, Nancy, indeed. She also is sort of involved with that, right? Um, so, again, those concepts, those phrases are out there. But, but what does it mean? So, like, when we say 
The fire of their spirit consumed them. What does that, what does that mean? What does that feel like? What does that tell us about what the experience of growing up an elf, living as an elf, and growing into, what, fiery consummation later in your life? Like, what? Consumed in what sense? Right? Um, so there's a lot of things that need refining, and we can see Tolkien tossing out these terms at the very beginning, and he's going to come back to those quite a bit uh, as we move forward. One thing that we can already... So the, the, the first glimpse that we get, I think, here, of this relationship between the spirit and the body, right? Um, and in the same time, they learn to walk and to dance. That is, by the time they're one, they can speak, walk, and dance, elf children. Why? Because they're born with more, like, higher dexterity score than human children, right? Higher intelligence, higher dexterity? No, that's not the case. And keep in mind... This is, I, I mean, I'm deliberately putting that in, like, role-playing game terms, sort of as a joke, but only sort of as a joke. Um, what I mean is a lot of people read The Silmarillion and come away with the impression that Tolkien's elves are just, like, better in everything, right? Like, as if it were a role, like, as if Tolkien's world were a kind of imbalanced um, role-playing game, right? Like, where the elves get all these massive boots to, like, every single... Boosts to every single one of their stats, right? And the humans are all, like, you know, peons down here who can barely do anything, right? Um, it's kind of how it, how it feels, how it sounds, in some ways, at some points. And this seems to be one of the things that Tolkien's addressing, not explicitly the RPG thing. Um, why is it, again, that elf children can speak and dance? Not only walk, but dance? By the time they're one, when, you know, human children, not that coordinated, adorable, but not that coordinated at the age of one, right? Why is that? Um, again, not because they're smarter, not because they have a higher dexterity, but because their wills came soon to the mastery of their bodies. Because their minds, their, their, their wills, their spirits, and their bodies are related to each other in a fundamentally different way than the wills and bodies of men are related to each other. Right? That their minds... Uh, I mean, why can't human children speak well? At age one, I mean, I can tell you from being, you know, I, I, I have had a couple age one and pre-age one kids in my house. And, you know, you definitely get the impression that uh, if they could talk, they would before age one, like that they understand you. Uh, you know, they understand many of the things that you're saying and might speak themselves. But a lot of it is like. It's the same thing, like, do they want to dance? Yeah, and sometimes they try to dance, and it's adorable, but they're not, <laughs> just not coordinated, right? Uh, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, and that's not the case with, uh, with elves. There's not that gap between the mind or the will and the body. Now, I agree with you, Kit. That Kit says the frustration tantrums must have been epic. Totally agree. There are many times as a parent I can tell you that the lack of coordination between the will and the body works absolutely in your favor. So, you know, I got to I got to imagine that parenting young elves might not have been a dream every day of the week, you know what I'm saying? Um but um anyway, yeah. So, 
so again, all of these things are being explained by a difference, not in the quantity, right, but in the quality, in the nature of the link between the mind and the body. And he's saying that it's closer, right? There is less of an inhibition there. The body is more, what, in tune with the spirit, kind of connected to the spirit, obedient to the spirit, if that's, I mean, I'm I'm kind of projecting metaphors that are not intrinsic to the text here, so I'm being tentative about that. Um, But that seems to be what he's, uh, the mastery is the word he uses, right? Their will are masters of the body, which means their bodies, I guess to follow his metaphor, their bodies are more obedient uh, to the wills. Um, Yeah, oh man, David, I don't even want to imagine Feanor tantrums. Uh, you know, like a six-month-old Feanor. Yeah, boy, that must have been truly epic. But look at the other thing that we can... So, uh, apparently, Cecilia, they can speak really well. Um, uh, apparently, they can speak really well. Uh, you know, we're not told exactly... Um, exactly sort of... He doesn't say anything about articulation here, exactly. We'll get back to some language stuff later on, of course. It's Tolkien. We'll get back to some language stuff. But apparently, they can, they can, they can speak. They can articulate. Um, yeah, David, I don't think they're creepy like the girl in Dune. Yeah, no. Like Alia? No. No, not like that. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um that's an interesting idea. David Attlee suggesting there's, there's seems like there's almost like a continuum of physical control that Valar, like the bodies of the Valar are sort of perfect expressions of their will. Um, whereas elves have a high level of mastery over their body. They're like the, 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 the Fea and the Roa are very closely, but not perfectly in sync with the elves. Uh, humans further apart. Um, and the orcs, uh, perhaps much less so. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Matt. They're kids, not abominations. So in that way, unlike uh, the uh, 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 Aaliyah of the Knife in Dune. But because um, but, I mean, notice, although he describes their increased, or I mean, it was compared to humans, mastery over their bodies, um, they don't cease to be childlike, Right. You know, they're not, um, uh, yeah, they are, um, they're children at play and an elf child at play and a human child at play would look very similar, he says, right? So he's, I I think it's not that he's trying specifically to speak against the Dune parallel, but I do think that that's exactly the kind of thing that he's saying. Don't think of this in the sense of they're like super mature. Or something like that. It's not about them being mature. It's not about them, um, you know, taking counsel with the wise among the adults, right, from an early age. Just because they can speak and walk and dance doesn't mean that. They're still children, and they play and dance, and, um, you know, they look like human children. They act like human children. Um, The main difference is that they are more graceful, right? Um, They're... and. They would look weird. The thing that they would look that would look most strange is that the sophistication of their words and their speech would be way, way greater, as well as the gracefulness of their limbs. Right. Again, when we see a toddler, right, when you see like an 18 month toddling around, 
what do you do? You know, you're like, whoa, watch out. Like, you know, somebody blocked the corner of the coffee table, right? I mean, you expect them to be clumsy, lurching around and probably falling on his face in a minute, right? Um, and so you'd see this elf child um, of a similar age or at least of a similar stature who was coordinated, right? Who could dance, right? Um, and also who was who could speak, right? Who was articulate. So you would think from the way they moved and the way that they talked that they must be way older than they look, right? Um, which, of course, would be true. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Rachel, I, wouldn't, I don't think we can imply the negative. Rachel is asking, uh, is the indication then that adult elves don't delight in the world around them, which is what we're told the... Uh, the for in their early days, elf children delighted still in the world about them and the fire of their spirit did not consume them. I don't think that we can take a, a flat negative from that. Right. They're like once they reached the age of adulthood, uh, elves ceased to delight in any way in the world about them. Um, certainly, Rachel, I agree with you that um, delight in the world about them seems to be one of the things that we um, notice about the elves all through, right? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty common feature uh, of the elves in Tolkien's world, from especially uh, in The Hobbit um, and, uh, and also in The Lord of the Rings, as we see. Um, they never lose that tone that they are given in The Hobbit. Um, yeah, good. Let's see. Uh, Amanda, I think you're maybe new in here. What you should do, Amanda, is type if you have a comment or a question, type it into the questions box and hit enter, and I'll see it then. Um, I see you have your hand raised, but I, I'm, I can't. There are way too many people for me to turn on folks' mics. But if you put the comment in, I'll, I'll, I'll get it and work it through here. Um, anyway, right. So, um, so yeah. So, Rachel, I don't think we're safe to say that, but yet I totally hear where you're coming from, Rachel. I mean, that sentence almost suggests that, right? In their early days, elf children still delighted in the world about them. Before they became all jaded, right? Or whatever. I mean, it sounds like that. And the fire of their spirit had not consumed them, which sounds like a bad thing. And the burden of memory was still like the burden of memory also sounds like a bad thing. So it sounds like, you know, <laughs> before they started getting, it goes steeply downhill from there, right? After like when they were kids, they delighted in the world around them. And then the fire consumption, the burden of memory, right? And um, goodbye, youth and delight. Um, anyway, yeah, I, so I, I definitely don't think that we're safe drawing that kind of a sort of, you know, negative conclusion from that. And yet, I, again, I hear you. That sentence is really striking to me for exactly that reason, um, because he does make it sound like that. So let's sort of continue to watch that in particular. What I'm interested in seeing is how he goes on to define the fire of their spirits consuming them. That sounds really bad, right? I mean, burden of memory. Okay, like that can be, you know, that can be good or it can be bad. I mean, it would be hard. Um, I mean, bearing memories from 400,000 years, it's a lot of memories, right? Even if they're all good memories, which I'm almost certain not to be, right? Still, that's a lot. It's a long time. Um, so anyway, um, I, that one, okay. But fire of their spirit consumed them. Like when fire consumes a thing, that's usually 
the end of the thing, right? I mean, that's we normally call that destruction, right? Are we to understand that the spirits of elves are destroying them continually, right? That they're what? They're like a candle that's burning out? Is that really what's happening there? Um, anyway, so we'll see. We'll see. But, but Rachel, absolutely. I had that same reaction. The last thing that I would want to emphasize that we learn from this passage here um, is that when we talk about rules for elves, because of the first principle that we noticed, that is that close connection, that, that strong mastery of the will over the body, there are fewer rules, universal rules, right? Um, because universal rules kind of apply when like an external force is acting on you, right? Um, notice what we get there at the end. Not until the 50th year did the Eldar attain the stature and shape in which their lives would afterwards endure. So it takes them 50 years to become fully grown. Like they're not really considered adults until they're 50. And for some, 100 years would pass before they were full grown. Or a hundred years, somewhere between 50 and 100. So apparently, growing up is elective, right? And some elves, due to what? I don't know, the circumstances, due to the choices they make, due to the direction in which their fea is pointed? I, I don't know why or what the difference makes. Some of them don't really grow up until they're a hundred, right? Um, I don't know if that's like according to them or according to their parents or exactly what. Um, but, um, uh, but exactly, David, it's not universal, right? Which makes sense if the bodies are indeed uh, strongly under the mastery of their wills, right? That differences in the wills of different elves is natural enough, right? Different people, different men, right, have different uh, wills as well. Um, but of course, you can you can try to not grow up as much as you uh, as much as you want, and it's not going to do you any good, right? You're still going to become an adult um, at pretty much the same rate as everybody else does. Not so with the elves, and that makes sense under the context of what he's already been saying. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's uh, now. Several of you are jumping ahead and want and talking about like what the fire of their spirit means. We'll get there. Relax. We've got twenty-two more slides, right? Let's see how this how the text unfolds. It. That's what we're doing here. Okay. So let's keep going. We start with romance. The Eldar wedded for the most part in their youth, and soon after their fiftieth year, they had few children. But these were very dear to them. Their families, or houses, were held together by love and a deep feeling for kinship in mind and body, and the children needed little governing or teaching. There were seldom more than four children in any house, and the number grew less as ages passed. But even in days of old, while the Eldar were still few and eager to increase their kind, Theonor was renowned as the father of seven sons, and the histories record none that surpassed him. The Eldar wedded once only in life, and for love, or at the least by free will, upon either part. That's interesting. For love, or at the least by free will, upon either part. 
Even when in after days, as the histories reveal, many of the Eldar in Middle-earth became corrupted and their hearts darkened by the shadow that lies upon Arda, seldom is any tale told of deeds of lust among them. Marriage, save for rare ill changes or strange fates, was the natural course of life for all the Eldar. It took place in this way. Those who would afterwards become wedded might choose one another early in youth, even as children, and indeed this happened often in days of peace, but unless they desired soon to be married and were of fitting age, the betrothal awaited the judgment of the parents of either party. Okay. Yeah, uh, Mary's immediately, of course, thinking of Aeol and Arthel there with the, the business about love on either part or at least free will on either part. Yeah. Um, so, Mary, here's the fun thing, right? The fun thing is, as we're... Remember the order. Remember the date. When are we writing this? Right? When is Tolkien writing this? Late 50s. Right? Late 50s. So not only are all of those Silmarillion stories written already, but The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit also written already. Right? So um, the things that he is fleshing out here don't tell us the real story behind those other stories, necessarily. Some of them might. Right? But for many of them, he is explaining the stories, not revealing to us where the stories came from, if you see what I mean. Right? And I think that that's an important difference here. So, yes, Mary, I, I do suspect that when he said that, um, he might have said the Eldar wedded once only in life and for love upon either part. But there's already a precedent in his own stories of one which was at least dubious, Right. So we throw in the free will clause. But, Mary, that's important, right? As it serves a, a, as, a, as, a, well, as a gloss on the story of Aeol and Arthel, right? Whatever else you want to say about the wedding, about the marriage of Aeol and Arthel, you can't say that it wasn't done by her free will. Because Tolkien has just said that it was. Um, even though, no, remember, in that same paragraph, he's talking about many of the Eldar in Middle-earth becoming corrupted and their hearts darkened by the shadow that lies upon Arda, right? So it's not that no elves can do anything bad, right? It's not that everything among the elves is, is, is lovely, either for them or for everybody else. But um, it, but even among those, seldom is any tale told of deeds of lust among them. Right. Um, in other words, the Aeol and Arathel story is not a rape story. That, I think, is one of the conclusions that I feel fairly safe in drawing from this paragraph. Right. As he and again, I can't I Mary, I completely agree with you. I think that Aeol and Arathel are top on the list or near the top, at least on the list of things that he's thinking of. Right. Stories that he's reflecting on as he's writing this paragraph. Um and that seems to me one of the um, uh, one of the conclusions uh, that he is inviting, I think, even to say um, from this paragraph. So, Matt, yes, sexual harassment and rape are foreign concepts to elves. Yes. Yes. Seldom is any tale told of deeds of lust among them. That doesn't mean none. Right. But um, but yes, seldom. Um, yes, and Josiah, this does mean that Mygwen is 
very odd, right? Um, uh, Josiah, I also hear behind the word seldom there. Um, if, if, if Arathel is the one who kind of pops to mind in the word, at least in the words, at least by free will, right? Um, Maiglin is the one who pops to my mind with the word seldom, right? Notice he doesn't say never. He doesn't say never, but he does say seldom. And it's a really, really big deal. Um, uh, really big deal. Okay. Yep. Yeah. No, exactly, Nancy. It's not that there... You could possibly argue that um, uh, Kelligorm also, uh, towards Luthien, was guilty uh, of a deed of lust as well. Yes. Yes. I think that that is... I, I think that you could probably make that case good against Kelligorm. Um, but... Um, but yeah, again, it's, it's it's seldom, right? It's just it's very unusual, not unknown, but very unusual, uh, and um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Jennifer Kelligorm, uh, the 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 yes, the capture of Luthien there. That's exactly what uh, what Nancy's thinking of there. Okay, but now, how does this work? How does this fit? Again, notice this doesn't just mean elves are better than humans. Elves are different from humans. And what are the ways in which they're different? Again, remember, way number one, their wills have the mastery over their bodies. Um, so they are not... One of the consequences of that is that sort of fleshly desires, right? The desires of the body are less often going to lead the will astray. Right. To uh, lead the will to make a choice that it thinks it shouldn't make just because of the um, because it's, you know, giving in to the temptation to please the body. Right. If you have a race of beings whose wills are in significantly greater mastery over their bodies, whose wills are the boss of their bodies, much, much less uh, just subject to the whims of their bodies, um, as we saw in the growing up process, right? Um, and, and as he's asserting here uh, in the whole sexual environment, right? That follows. Again, it doesn't mean necessarily that elves are better, right? They're just different, but this is one of the ways in which they're different. He's, so he's explaining why this is. He's not asserting it. He's explaining, in part, how it came to be. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, so David, I let's see. David says, uh, so the elves that do bad, do they have less control over their lusts? No, I wouldn't say so. I think that what that shows us is not that the elves who do commit act of, acts of lust, those few elves who commit acts of lust, mm-hmm. certainly Maeglin, possibly, um, Kel- probably, Kelligorm as well. Notice I'm not including Kurafin in there, and the reason I'm not including Kurafin is that I am not convinced that Kurafin's actions against Luthien have anything to do with sexual desire. Uh, I think that Kurafin was doing politics from the beginning. Uh, so I'm really, I don't think 
that Kurafin's issue was that he had the hots for Luthien. I think he had different plans. Um, but anyway, that's just my own interpretation. I could be wrong about that. Uh, Keligorum, I'm a little more willing to throw under the bus when it comes to, uh, you know, the question of being subject to his sexual desire. But anyway, the point that I'm coming back to, David uh, Urbach, about that is it's not that, say, Maegwin and Keligorm have less mastery of their wills over their bodies. It's that their wills are different. Their wills are themselves more warped, I would say. Um, uh, that it's, it doesn't tell us something about my, that Maegwin's body is stronger, like his bodily desires are stronger. It's that his will is different. His will is oriented in such a way that he's not unwilling to do this in the end. Um, uh, that's how I take that. And as a consequence, right, of, of the um, becoming corrupted and their hearts being darkened by the shadow that lies upon Arda, right? These things, you know, these things, these things happen. Um, and yet, so, Tony, I, I believe very strongly that he is saying, Tolkien is saying, that this is a difference not in culture, of the elves, but in the nature of the elves. Now, you could call it a difference in culture as well, in that, like, the direction... So, okay, it's one thing to say your will is more strongly in control of your body than in humans, right? But that doesn't tell you, like, necessarily that your wills are pointed in positive, constructed, and friendly directions, right? Um, you, your will can have great mastery over your body, and you could still be a jerk, right? Uh, so that doesn't necessarily... So that element of it, Tony, would be cultural, right? Um, if you are, you know, raised within a culture which is, you know, encouraging you to, uh, you know... Uh, objectivize women and, and, and uh, you know, treat other people shabbily, right? Then your will will be oriented towards that and you have mastery over your body, so that's what you'll do, right? So that element is cultural, but what he's describing here is by nature, right? The na just the way that elves... And that's uh, that, uh, to me, this seems to me the, the core theme of this entire essay, um, is trying to help us to understand what elves are different from humans. They just, by nature, they operate differently from humans. How? How are they different? Right? And in that sense, Tony, the difference isn't cultural. Right? Um, uh, you know, the concept of monogamy seems to be a human ideal as well. Right? They're just bad at it <laughs> compared to the elves. And that's the difference in nature. Right? Um, okay. Marriage was the natural course of life for all the Eldar. Um, now, thinking about um, uh, thinking about um, the rest of the history of Middle Earth series, I don't know about you, but I couldn't help but think of remember something from long, long ago when I was reading that last sentence. Those who had afterwards become wedded might choose one another early in youth, even as children, and indeed this happened often in days of peace. But unless they desired soon to be married and were of fitting age, the betrothal awaited the judgment of the parents of either party. Um, 
remind anybody else of anything? Good. Well, one thing, this is certainly related to the story of Luthien and Dairon. Yes, who seem to have been sort of intended for each other in this way. Indeed, even the image that we get of the two of them, like the scene that Baron sees from the bushes, right, of him piping and her dancing, it's kind of, this seems like Luthien and Dairon do have exactly this kind of relationship. Now, they're not betrothed yet, Um but I agree, Luthien. I, I agree, Tony, that it's relevant to think there. Um, yes, Jennifer and Alyssa were both thinking of exactly the same thing that I was thinking of. And that's uh, You and Me in the Cottage of Lost Play, the poem that Tolkien wrote uh, back in Book of Lost... Well, which was published in Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1, um, which... <laughs> the, the commentary of which is, I think, the moment in the entire series uh, where Christopher Tolkien was most palpably and painfully uncomfortable because that poem was manifestly like he tried to say as little about this as possible. And yet you could not get away from the fact that that was obviously a poem that Tolkien had written for his young wife. Right. They were d just fairly recently married at the time. Um, he had clearly written that for Edith. And the poem depicted the two of them meeting in dreams, right? So in their dreams, they were transported as children are, according to that early mythology, to the cottage of lost play, right? To elven lands in their dreams. And that they had met as children um, at the cottage of lost play um, and formed this bond together which led ultimately uh, to their marriage later on. Um, so, yes, I cannot help but think that Tolkien is... If he's not, like, glancing aside at his wife of now far, you know, four decades longer than he was when he wrote that poem originally, um, uh, goodness, more than that. This is 45 years, maybe 48 years further along in their marriage than when he wrote that poem. Um, but anyway, not only is he glancing aside at his wife, um, but at that tradition, um, at that early concept, I think. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, um, should we be thinking about Aragorn and Arwen to some extent? Yeah, Arwen's not underage. She is way more than 50. Uh, at this time. Um, but um, so it's not a youthful thing for her. Um, um, she is. How old is Arwen? Like 500 ish, I want to say off the top of my head. Somebody look it up and tell me someone will remember better than I will. Um, uh, but I want to say 500. Maybe it's longer. Maybe it's 2000. And it's a it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's more than 50, way more than 50. When she meets Aragorn. Um, now, Aragorn is barely of age, right? And not at all of age by Elvish standards. Um, but of course he's not. Anyway. Um, yeah. The choice, however, of one spirit for another that is of, and by spirit I mean fea, right? Of one elf spirit for another, you know. They get the, it's not about the bodies, 
right? Um, you know, two adolescent elves coming together and deciding to get, this is not about hormones running amok, right? Um, that's not how things work uh, in, uh, in elvish culture. Again, wills, mastery over bodies. So when two children, either young children or teenage, you know, elvish teenagers or whatever the equivalent is for, you know, those frisky elvish 40-year-olds, um, whatever it is, uh, it's not about um it's not about their bodies taking over right um it's about their spirits joining together and in fact you know david i'm coming back david atley i'm coming back to what you were saying before about that sort of mind body spectrum right um like the valar like marriage among the valar or marriage in quotation marks among the valar right is really just an affinity of the two spirits right um there is a kind of partnership between Manwe and Varda, which bears, at least metaphorically, the name of marriage, right? They are as spouses, right? Um, so, um, yeah, they are as spouses, but they're not exactly married to each other because they don't exactly have bodies in this way at all. Elvish marriage is in this way more like the love of the Valar for each other. Two spirits kind of entering into partnership uh, with each other. Great. Thank you guys for doing the math. 2700 is Arwen's age uh, when she uh, falls in love with Aragorn. So there you go. Um, 2711 to be exact. So as I suspected, emphatically of age to make her own decisions on these points. But I agree, Jennifer. I don't think she looked a day above 2,700 either. Um, okay. Let's keep going. So, yeah, a bit of an age gap. A little awkward for the first few years. But it evens out eventually. I mean, okay, not much. <laughs> but a little bit. <laughs> okay. Nonetheless, among the Eldar, even in Amon, the desire for marriage was not always fulfilled. Love was not always returned. And more than one might desire one other for spouse. Concerning this, the only cause by which sorrow entered the bliss of Amon, the Valar were in doubt. Some held that it came from the marring of Arda, and from the shadow under which the Eldar awoke. For thence only, they said, comes grief or freedom of each fea, and was a mystery of the nature of the children of Eru. Okay. Um, so, elves don't stray... Right? Elves don't commit adultery. Um, elves don't, uh, yeah, I mean, they don't love somebody else's wife. Like, that doesn't happen among the elves, or at least seldom happens among the elves, we are told. So they don't have that problem. But that doesn't mean they don't have problems. It doesn't even mean that they don't have love problems. The primary problem that they do have, unrequited love, is still a thing. Right. Um, they all all pretty much all. Are we safe? Am I safe in saying that? Let's see. It said uh, save for rare ill changes or strange fates. Marriage was the natural course of life for all the Eldar. So most of them, most of the time are inclined to get. So this impulse to sort of find your spouse, right, to find your your mate um, 
you know, to, to, to find the, the man way to your Varda, right. Was almost universal among them. Right. And that's what generally happened most of the time. Right. Um, but it doesn't always work out. The desire for marriage is not always fulfilled just because they all have this desire doesn't mean it's satisfied. So there were many lonely elves, um, disappointed elves, um, Yeah. The only cause by which sorrow entered the bliss of Amon. Pre-sorrow entering the bliss of Amon, presumably. But that is like, that's to say from the old days, right? While Melkor's still in prison, right? And everybody's happy. Uh, and we're living in Valinor and everything is wonderful. Um, and the trees are in blossom and everything is going fine. But some of the elves are still sad. And what makes them sad? What makes them sad? is unrequited love, right? <laughs> Stephen Cover says, first-age problems. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Um, right, now Ver Veronica says, yeah, they, 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 just, uh, they just divorced their dead spouses. Yeah, well, we'll be, we'll be getting back around to Finway and Muriel again, right? As we can see, uh, marriage... Uh, <laughs> marriage doesn't always pan out among the Eldar, right? Um, but um, we're going to be coming back to the question that I was asking, kind of jokingly asking, but not really 100% jokingly asking, which is why does Tolkien create that problem for himself, right? I was asking this last time. Why does he go so far out of his way to create this enormously complicated and sometimes, frankly, comical post-mortem divorce court situation. Like, it's weird. Why does he do it? Why does he hold on to it? There's so many easy answers and ways out of it. Um, again, like, just... Anyway, there's so many potentially easier answers out of this problem, um, and he doesn't do it, right? Why not? Well, one answer here is that... Um, uh, He is interested in the problems, in a sense, right? Having established the rule, the will has great mastery over the body, much more than among men, right? So now let me tell you about how their wills are inclined, right? Well, okay, they're generally inclined towards marriage. That's interesting. But now what we need to know are what are the exceptions, right? Um, uh, in order for us to really understand how it works, and what that's like, right? Um, love is not always returned. This is a theological question for the Valar. They're trying to understand this, right? Concerning this, this whole unrequited love business, the Valar were in doubt. Why should this be? Why should this be? It doesn't make any sense to the Valar that their hearts should be set on something that they can't have. I mean, that seems like a really obvious state of affairs to us, but we're not the Valar. And here I think Tolkien is doing a really good job of imagining things from the point of view of not only an unfallen group of people, people who are not themselves sinful, but also from the point of view of a totally non-incarnated 
unfallen group of people, namely the Valar, right? That they're going to look at this and they're going to say, look, there is something messed up about this, right? Um, that your bodies should submit to your wills seems to make perfect sense. So why doesn't your will submit to what is like good and healthy and best? Why do you set your heart on something that you can't have? Um, that seems like a bad idea, right? Um, yeah, why would they have a desire that can't be filled, Jennifer? Exactly. This is, for the Valar, a theological question, right? So here are their theories. Some held that it came from the marring of Arda. They're a little bit messed up. Well, Arda's a little bit messed up. So what do you expect? They're of Arda. And Arda's a bit messed up, so they're a bit messed up too. Some held that it came from the marring of Arda and from the shadow under which the Eldar awoke. For thence only, they said, comes grief or freedom of each Arda. And yeah, that linking of grief and freedom, Margaret, is really interesting. Um, it sounds like both of those things, both grief and freedom, are part of the mystery of the nature of the children of Eru. The Valar don't really get either one of them. What do the Valar do? Do the Valar have free will? Sort of. They are who they are. They are an expression of who they are, right? But, um, but yeah, it's pretty clear, Tony, that elves have free will, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree, David Attlee. The problem, obviously, is that the Valar haven't read Boethius. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, had Boethius come along sooner, the Valar would have been less puzzled, I think, about this whole thing. Um, but yes, Tony, it does seem that he's implying something along the lines of grief is the cost of free will. Yeah. If the will is free, grief is at least a possibility. And it's certain to happen at some time or others. Yeah, yeah. Matt says the Valar seem to be exceptionally good at misunderstanding the elves in some ways. In some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, is grief a synonym of freedom for the Valar? I don't know in this way that it is, uh, James. Uh, and the way that I would say that is that, okay. The grief that's being described here, like the grief of unrequited love, is a grief that's mm, created, in a sense, by your own choices, by your own will. It's not that the Valar do not experience grief, but they grieve for the things that they see, like they grieve for the sufferings of the world. Um, I don't know. It's hard. I mean, I kind of think when we look at the story of the Valar that they kind of have to have free will. Um, but I'd be interested to see if he seems to be suggesting consistently that they don't, because that would be really interesting to me. You know what it makes me think of right away? That shocking passage where he was like, if you think uh, the 
Valar were wrong to invite the elves to Valinor, then you lie! You lie damnedly with the tongue of Melkor! It's like, okay! Um, uh, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, um, th- that would be consistent with that, like to say, like, we're, if he really is intending, um, if he really is intending to, uh, remove, um, if he really is intending to remove regret, essentially, from the emotional palette of the, uh, you know, with which the Valar are being painted, um, if they don't have that, uh, then maybe he is thinking about the Valar not essentially having free will. Um, but we'll see. Okay, let's keep going. Um, Oh, wait, hang on a second. Ah, okay, sorry. My apologies. Let me go back here for a second. Thank you, Josiah. Good, good, uh, good catch there. Um, skipped a few words here. Uh, I thought that was a little awkward. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> the full text is a typo here. The full text is, For thence only, they said, uh, comes grief or disorder. Some held that it came of love itself and of the freedom of each fea. Um, so, for thence only, that is from the shadow, grief and disorder come only from the shadow. right? If it weren't for the shadow, there would be no grief and there would be no disorder. Except some hold that it comes of love itself and from the freedom. That, that is, grief does come from freedom. Um, and that kind of sounds to me like the correct opinion of the two. Um, so it is where we get to eventually. Thank you, Josiah, for catching that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. All right. Among the Noldor also, it was a custom that the bride's mother should give to the bride to the bridegroom a jewel upon a chain or collar, and the bridegroom's father should give a like gift to the bride. These gifts were sometimes given before the feast. Thus the gift of Goadriel to Aragorn, since she was in place of Arwen's mother, was in part a bridal gift, an earnest of the wedding that was later accomplished. Now, of course, I read that first sentence, and I was immediately like, oh, just like the LSR, oh, great, okay, and that, and the, oh, well, then he just said it, okay, fine, right? So he just made explicit the, uh, the point that I wanted to make. Of course, one thing that we get here is, of course, seeing how this is him reading back into this, right? Taking... The fa- and he's so good at this, right? Tolkien is so excellent at this, taking the facts that already exist, and rather than saying, I've got to go back and change the facts, saying, I'm going to, exi- to invest the pre-existing facts with meaning, right? Um, so, yeah, this is, a, this is a really fun bit of retcon, Nancy, absolutely. Um, uh, and I, I, I love this, right? Um, first of all, notice... So there are two things about this. One is, again, to be reminded of how um, it is the giving of the stone to Aragorn by Galadriel, which seems to be in part inspiring this passage, right? Um, So in a sense, you know, among the Noldor of the First Age, this custom came to be because it's what Galadriel did in The Lord of the Rings, right? So the the causal effect goes that way instead of the other way around. But more importantly... um, And this is the sign of a really good retcon, right? And what Tolkien is super good at is not only does he manage to 
work it into the larger story. That is the larger story of elves and elvish culture in a really beautiful way. Um, but, um, but he invests a new meaning in that story itself, right? Um, the story of the gift of the elf stone to Aragorn is greatly enriched by this piece of retcon, right? And that is fantastic. Um, because not only does this give this extra piece of characterization, Marie, exactly like that, you know, Galadriel's, uh, um, uh, yeah, Arwen's mom isn't around, right? Um, the bride's mother should give to the bridegroom a jewel, right? So, like, Calabrian should really be doing that, but Calabrian's gone, so her mom, Goadriel, is going to step in and do this, right? Um, that's um, that's excellent, right? That's really neat. Um, but there's more than that, right? This is the Elfstone, right? This is his name, right? So his the name that he is destined to wear, which he's going to be given spontaneously by his people, right? When they see the stone uh, hanging around his neck that Galadriel gave him, is now being retroactively transformed into part of a wedding convention, right? So that his name, his kingly name, is coded as part of his marriage to Arwen from the beginning, right? Uh, the way that it ties all of those things together is just gorgeous, right? Just absolutely gorgeous. Um, absolutely love that. Um, and Nancy says, see, now I'm just sad that Aragorn never got to, uh, to, to meet uh, uh, Calabrian. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Arwen has a jewel too, right? Which should have been given to her by the bridegroom's father, right? So, theoretically, Amathorn should have given to Arwen a gem, right? Um, but Amathorn couldn't because he's been dead for a long time, <laughs> right? So what happens? Where does... Where does uh, where does Arwen get her gem? What's the story of Arwen's gem? It's the gem that she gives to Frodo. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think Galadriel covers both sides here. Right? Um, she gives the gem um, on behalf of Aragorn. So, in retrospect, we can see how thoroughly Goadriel has blessed the wedding of Arwen and Aragorn, right? Awesome. This is so good. That is so good. I don't have much else to say about this other than just really uh, loving and appreciating how good Tolkien is at retcon and seeing how this works. Okay, let's keep going. Lots to do. Okay, let's get on to aging and burning away your Hroa with the fire of your Fea. As for the begetting and bearing of children, a year passes between the begetting and the birth of an elf child, so that the days of both are the same or nearly so, and it is the day of begetting that is remembered year by year. 
So since it's in, so basically your birthday and your begetting day are pretty much the same day, approximately. You don't count up from the day you're born. You count up from the day you're begotten. Okay. For the most part, these days come in the spring. It may be, it might be thought that since the Eldar do not, as men deem, grow old in body, do not, as men deem, grow old in body, they may bring forth children at any time in the ages of their lives, right? Um, so yeah, like elves, they're ever young, right? So what's to stop, you know, a 500,000 year old elf from begetting or bearing children, right? I mean, yeah. So men might deem this, but this is not so. For the Eldar do indeed grow older, even if slowly. The limit of their lives is the life of Arda, which, though long beyond the reckoning of men, is not endless, and ages also. Moreover, their body and spirit are not separated, but coherent, as the weight of the years, with all their changes of desire and thought, gathers upon the spirit of the Eldar, so do the impulses and moods of their bodies change. Uh, this the Eldar mean when they speak of their spirits consuming them, and they say that ere Arda ends, all the Eldalie on earth will have become as spirits invisible to mortal eyes, unless they will to be seen by some among men into whose minds they may enter directly. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Um, see the point here? He is now revealing even further what it means, in a sense, for the will of the elves to have a greater mastery over their bodies. Why don't elves bear children? Is it that, you know, elves achieve adulthood at the age of 50, and, you know, elvish women experience menopause at the age of around, you know, 490. I don't know, right? Something high, right? So they their childbearing years are much longer than those of men, just as their childhood is much longer. But no, that's not how it works, right? Because again, that is how, um, that is how the life of men works, where their bodies dictate things to them, right? It can be the will of human men and women to bear children long past when their bodies are willing to go along with that, right? Um, such often happens. Uh, not among elves, we're told. Again, because... Um, their bodies and their minds are connected differently, right? So it's not, a, it's not about physical limitations on the part of the elves. It's about their minds. Just as all elf spirits are inclined, with some exceptions, toward, and, and under some, some, some circumstances, towards marriage, so elves, we are told, are inclined towards childbearing only for one sort of stage of their lives, right? Because their bodies and spirit are not separated 
but coherent. Notice this is a different metaphor he's giving us now, different from the mastery metaphor that he gave us at the beginning. They're not separated, but coherent, right? The elves, the, 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 the minds and bodies, the spirits and bodies, and please understand when I'm saying mind and spirit, I'm kind of using, I understand that I'm using these synonymously. I'm talking about the Fea and the Hroa uh, all the way through here. The Fea and the Hroa of elves are coherent with each other. They're not at war. They're not separated. Um, for those of you who are familiar uh, with the epistles of Paul, right? If you think about Romans chapter seven and the, you know, that uh, that which you will do, but and you know that I do not, right? Elves don't have that problem. They don't have that problem. They don't have the will to do one thing. You know, the mind is willing, but the flesh is weak. No, um, because the mind is willing, it doesn't matter what the flesh is. The flesh does what it's told, right? Um, it's just completely different, right? Um, uh, with the elves in this way. So again, what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, how does this connect with childbearing and aging, right? They do age, but again, they don't age like humans do. Aging among humans is pretty much a body thing, right? I'm not saying it has nothing to do with your mind, but I am saying your mind can't stop it, right? Your body dictates, dictates to you. And I can tell you as a, you know, as a, as a dude of a certain age, right? You get to the place where like your mind says, hey, I'm, I can do that. And your body's like, I don't think so, right? Um, that's you know, how it works. Um, Josiah, I think it is exactly fair to say that Galleon the butler must have wanted to get totally drunk. <laughs> yes, exactly. He chose it. Clearly chose it. Um, so, um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So, um, <laughs> exactly, Tony. It's like if the spirit is willing, then the flesh is also willing. Exactly, exactly. Um, so they age, but it's, it's not just that they age at a different rate. It's that aging means something different. They do age, right? But in what sense do they, it's not about at what rate do they age. It's about in what sense do they age? And this is where we come back around to the question of what does it mean to speak of their spirits consuming them, right? He finally comes back around to that juicy phrase from the first, uh, slide, um, so let's start with the sentence before. As the weight of the years, with all their changes of desire and thought, gather upon the spirit of the Eldar, so do the impulses and moods of their bodies change. Their impulses and moods change. That is, their, their, their bodies change, essentially, as their desire and thought changes over the weight of years. That's what elvish aging is like. The burden of memory, right? As time goes on, and the mind turns itself to different things, the mind is weighted down by memory, so the mind changes, and therefore the body changes. That's elvish aging. Okay? This is this the Eldar mean when they speak of their spirits consuming them. Okay? All right. Um, and specifically... What that looks like, that is your spirit consuming your body, doesn't mean your body gradually collapsing into ash or just kind of becoming sort of 
you know, nice and toasty brown and then like getting a little bit charred around the edges and then till finally you fall into ashes like Feanor did and he just did it in an accelerated cycle. It's not about that. Um, it's not about being eaten out from the inside so that you're all hollow until you crumble. And I mean, like consuming is a big word, right? Um, which makes it sound like what happens to food or makes it sound like what happens to the fuel of fire. Those are the two consuming images, right? That immediately leap to my mind anyway. Um, yeah, that's not what happens, right? Um, what happens, what the spirit consuming the body looks like is becoming invisible so that the end point of that process by the time we get towards the end of Arda, all elves will have become as invisible as spirits invisible to mortal eyes. They won't have visible bodies at all anymore. That's what their spirits consuming their bodies look like. So that's a pretty big, I think we can all agree, that becoming permanently immaterial and invisible is a fairly significant change in the impulse and mood of your body. Right? Um, such that the I'm not in a childbearing frame of mind anymore seems like small potatoes compared to that, right? So it's a very early stage uh, of the process. So Mary, this is exactly what Tolkien is building up to, what he meant by, or at least retroactively, what he meant by the fading of the elves. Exactly, exactly. More on that, more on that, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's keep going. A bunch of people answering questions that are only going to be answered on future slides. So let us go. Thus, although the wedded remain so forever, they do not necessarily dwell or house together at all times. For without considering the chances and separations of evil days, wife and husband, albeit united, remain persons individual, remain persons individual, having each gifts of mind and body that differ. Yet it would seem to any of the Eldar a grievous thing if a wedded pair were sundered during the bearing of a child, or while the first years of its childhood lasted. For which reason the Eldar would beget children only in days of happiness and peace, if they could. Okay, so, it is possible. So, elves are all inclined to marry, we're told. And uh, they marry for love on both sides, or at least a free will on both sides in the rare occasions when there isn't love on both sides. At least there's free will on both sides. But anyway, this doesn't mean that all elves go on, you know, and I, my subtitle of this uh, slide, they d don't go on growing the same way. Of course, I'm quoting Treebeard, speaking of the Ents and the Entwives, right, as one very famous example of married folks who didn't go on growing in the same way and whose interests took them in different directions, right? Um, and apparently, the elves can do this too, right? Um, this often happens, in fact. You remain wedded forever. They're, all, they're forever bonded to each other. But that doesn't mean they live together for all of the whole rest of the history of Arda, right? Um, they don't necessarily dwell or house together at all times. Um, because they remain persons individual having each gifts of mind and body that differ. The two of them might have a, a period of time in which they're both just interested in different things, right? They're, 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 they're doing different 
They're engaged in separate pursuits. And so maybe they live apart for a few millennia. Could happen. Could easily happen. Right? Um, yeah, so a couple of you are thinking about... Um, uh, a couple of you are thinking about Galadriel and Celeborn. And Galadriel leaving and Celeborn staying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, exactly. Of course, uh, Celebrian is a different situation. Um, that is, her sundering from Elrond is a different situation. Um, I, certainly, that had more to do with the chances and separations of evil days. Certainly. Um but um, so they can remain united. So the uniting of elves. And so on, on the one sense, you could say this says a great deal about marriage, right? That their bond transcends mere cohabitation. Right. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that the two of them are a unit now, that they both have to be engaged always in the same thing. They remain persons individual. The two of them. Um, can it's all. It's almost like the guy who's writing this has been married for almost 50 years. It's, it's almost, it's almost like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Nerdanel and Feanor. Yeah, Josiah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I say that, um, uh, about him being married almost 50 years because it's, I mean, look, I haven't been married 50 years, but I have been married, oh golly, what is it now? Almost 23 years now. And even that's long enough for me to be able to see that, you know, to, to be able to remember, you know, what I thought marriage would be like when I got married. I mean, I got married at the age of 22. I was very young when I got married. Uh, and, um, uh, and I remember, you know, like imagining like the two of us would always be always one doing one thing all the time. And my wife and I are still happily married. And yet we we like I also I, too, have noticed that we remain persons individual, having each gifts of mind and body that differ. Uh, that's 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 something that has come to my notice over the last 23 years as well. Um, anyway, but it's this is. um this is something that I think is uh, fascinating, both about us, this statement about marriage, but again, telling us a little bit more about what elvish growth is like and the development of mind, right? And again, just to invite us not to be imagining, um, not to be imagining, not to, pre to resist projecting a kind of body-dominant situation here. Right. It's all about what way is your mind growing and developing because your body and all of the external things are going to follow that if you're an elf. Um, but it would be a great, a grievous thing for a wedded pair to be sundered during the bearing of a child. Right. More on that. Um, in all such things. OK, so, sorry, this is about uh, gender rules. Sorry, it's not about that. I'm going to come back to that later. Um, in all such things, not concerned with the bringing forth of children, the Neri and the Nisi, that is, the men and the women, of the Eldar are equal, 
unless it being this, and they, as they themselves say, that for the Nisi, the making of things new is for the most part shown in the forming of their children, so that invention and change is otherwise mostly brought about by the Neri. So they're equal, unless it be in this. Right? The one primary difference that he says that characterizes the difference between elvish men and elvish women, uh, between male and female elves, is that the men are more innovative. They uh, change things more. There are, however, no matters among which, which among the Eldar only a ne'er can think or do. Only a man can think or do. Or others with which only a niece is concerned. There are indeed some differences between the natural inclinations of the Neri and Nisi, and other differences that have been established by custom, varying in place and in time, and in the several races of the Eldar. For instance, the arts of healing and all that touches on the care of the body are among all the Eldar most practiced by the Nisi, that is, females, whereas it was the elven men who bore arms at need. And the Eldar deemed that the dealing of death, even when lawful or under necessity, diminished the power of healing, and that the virtue of the Nisi in this matter was due rather to their abstaining from hunting or war than to any special power that went with their womanhood. Indeed, in dire straits or desperate defense, the Nisi fought valiantly, and there was less difference in strength and speed between elven men and elven women that had not borne child than is seen among mortals. On the other hand, many elven men were great healers and skilled in the lore of living bodies, though such men abstained from hunting and went not to war until the last need. Okay. Um... Yes, Tony. So there could be elvish warrior women. Absolutely. Again, remember the first premise here is that there is nothing which is... There are no things that are just for women, and there are no things that are restricted just to men. Um, there are no matters among which among, among the Eldar which only a ne'er can think or do. Men do not have capabilities that the women don't have. And there are no other things with which only a niece is concerned. There are not things like, that's women's stuff, right? There is nothing, he says. Um, there are no matters of which that is true. Um, yes. Um, there are some natural differences of inclination. Now, thinking about what he says about fighting and healing... What does that make you think of? What do you think he's thinking of here? Yeah, Jennifer, I'm thinking of Eowyn all day long here. Well, no. Actually, Eowyn, I will admit, is the second one I was thinking of. Right? The first one I was thinking of was uh, the the Houses of Healing. Right? Um where the uh, the chief of the healers talked about those murdering devils, right? Um, and uh, talking about patching the rents made by the men of swords. Um, that divide between the healers and the fighters, right, um, is still clearly alive, even in late Gondorian culture there, right? Um, and, uh, and yes, absolutely... Uh, you're right, I mean, many of you are thinking of Aragorn as well, of course. And 
it's a big deal, right? And but remember, Aragorn's an exception, right? It's a little weird. Even by this reckoning, it's weird that Aragorn should be such a great healer, right? Um, he's an exception. Now, Elrond, uh, uh, Meron, and Tony, and several others are thinking about Elrond as well. Elrond is called the, you know, Aragorn says that Elrond is the greatest healer in Middle-earth. Um, but he's fought as well. He was the herald of Gilgalad. And, I mean, he was there in the battle. Um, he's fought as well. Um, uh, so he also would be a bit of an exception there. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, Marie, maybe. <clears throat> well, we'll see. We, we, we haven't gotten to Harold's yet. We'll get to Harold's. Um, but we haven't gotten there yet. Um, okay. With Eowyn, though, um, a bunch of this past. I know she's not elvish, right? So she's not, she's not, uh, she's not one of the Eldar, so this isn't about her. And yet we can see, I can feel it all the way through this, right? Uh, the powerful relevance of this uh, to Eowyn and her situation, right? Um, and the way in which I find Eowyn's choices in The Lord of the Rings being, I, I, I often get frustrated um, when people want to do a particular kind of feminist reading of the Eowyn passages, you know, that basically say Tolkien's sending her back to the kitchen at the end, right? Um, uh, after she, you know, steps out and breaks free from the restrictive gender role and she's then told to, you know, uh, the right thing to do is to give it up and be more feminine, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I... Um, and I strongly, strongly oppose that reading. Um, but this is one of the one of the things that I think that we can. What she is primarily doing is turning from being a killer, from being a warrior to being a healer. Right. What she understands and seems to understand intuitively is that those two things are opposed. What she comes to understand intuitively is that you can't. Be both. If you want to live in Athelion and build a garden eventually, right? Which is a very great and good thing. Just ask Sam. Um, uh, she can't be a shield maiden at the same time, right? Um, she's choosing between two paths. Um, yeah, exactly, Stephen. If if that were the case, he, then he's sending then then he's sending Faramir back to the kitchen too. Exactly, Stephen. That's just, I get really frustrated with the whole thing. Um, uh, because that it involves some really sloppy assumptions in framework. That is to like that healing is just a woman thing, right? Um, and it's not just a woman thing, even though, again, he's absolutely saying in this passage that uh, the the elven women were more inclined towards this, right? But notice the, how the cause and effect works, right? The Eldar deemed that the dealing of death, even when lawful or under necessity, diminished the power of healing, and that the virtue of the Nissi in this matter was due rather to their abstaining from hunting or war than to any special power that went with their womenhood. It isn't that healing is a woman thing. It's that women tend to do healing because killing tends to not be a woman thing. 
um, because the women tended to abstain from dealing death, they also therefore tended to be the greatest healers. Um, it is that fundamental, it is that, f- the, 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 the thing that is fundamental here is not the role being assigned to a particular gender. It is the opposition between killing and healing. That's the basic fundamental thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Marie. What Eowyn suffered from was, was despair and depression. And what she mi- winds up doing is more about hope and love of life. Exactly, exactly. And to take that transformation in the heart of Eowyn, that turning away from death and seeking death and instead embracing life, and to characterize that as simply, you know, Tolkien making an anti-feminist statement really burns my biscuits, I have to tell you. Like, that is just such an absurdly shallow reading of that. It really, uh, it's just, it's, there are a bunch of, like, you know, readings which I consider misreadings of Tolkien that kind of make me twitch, and there are a few of them uh, that actually kind of make me a little a bit angry, and that's one of them, I have to say. It uh, uh, really um, um, is tough. Um, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Lynn, uh, Schlesinger, who is of course one of our, uh, uh, one of our, 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 our typists, one of the people who helps me with our slides here, uh, just got an article published, uh, on this subject called Angels of Care and Houses of Healing in World War One: their possible influence on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So she's looking at, um, uh, hospitals and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, healing, uh, in the World War One context, um, and uh, thinking about uh, the links between that and his depiction of healing in, in the Lord of the Rings, really cool stuff. Um, I uh, here, let me uh, for those of you who are present, I can share that here. I'm going to share it. The uh, nope. Hang on, that didn't work. Sorry, Lynn. Hang on, I'm going to share this in a second. As soon as I sort out this thing here. There we go. I shared it in the Twitch chat, and I'll share it here, too. There you go, Lynn. Okay, let's see if I can share it everywhere. Yes, I can. There it is. All right. Shared it everywhere, Lynn. Okay. Um, awesome. Okay. Let's keep going. But every child among the Noldor, in which point, maybe, they differed from the other Eldar, had also the right to name himself or herself. Now the first ceremony, the announcement of the father name, was called the Esakarme, or name-making. Later, there was another ceremony called the Esakilme, or name-choosing. This took place at no fixed date after the Esakilme, or name-choosing. Sorry, after the Esakarme. Uh, but could not take place before the child was deemed ready and capable of lamatiave, as the Noldor called it, that is, of individual pleasure in the sounds and forms of words. And if that's not the most Tolkien word ever, I don't know what. The Elvish word that means individual pleasure in the sounds and forms of words. Lamatiave. Um, that is just like the coolest thing ever. Right. 
Um, <laughs> Steven says, it's not a privilege, but a right. <laughs> exactly. All elves have this, right? And when, when that love, right, uh, when that pleasure in the sound and form of words awakens fully in the heart of any give, given Noldo child, then the ceremony is held, right? The ceremony of the Esakilme uh, is held. Okay. The Noldor were of all the Eldar the swiftest in acquiring word mastery, but even among, f- but even among them, few before at least the seventh year had become fully aware of their own individual Lamatyave, or had gained a complete mastery of the inherited language and its structure, so as to express this Tiave skillfully within its limits. <laughs> oh man, that is so good. Very few, even among the Noldor, prior to the age of seven, had really figured out how to express the love of language by the devising of new sounds and words within the inherited structure of their language, right? If you can believe that, relatively few six-year-olds, among the, even among the Noldor, were capable of doing that. Oh, man. Oh, man. Exactly, Christy. Uh, six-year-old Noldo with uh, a six-year-old... Noldo would still say thing like they would call they would still call something a green great dragon or that kind of thing exactly exactly yeah so Nancy the individual part of the Lamatiave um, uh, individual pleasure in the sounds and forms of words I believe that that means their own unique personal pleasure in this in the not just like that they share in the pleasure of the sounds and forms of words that lots but like each Noldo um, has, I mean, uh, and this is specifically a Noldoran custom. Do the other elves have the same thing? Do they think about this in the same way? That's not obvious. This is a Noldor thing, as, we're be- as it's being explained to us here. Each Noldo, individually, has their own love, right? They have favorite words. Um, exactly. Jennifer is imagining young Noldo running through the house yelling, cellar door, cellar door. Exactly that kind of thing. Exactly that kind of thing. Um, and, um, yeah. So, now, David, you're right. Human children do make up new world, new words all the time. But when human children make up new words, they tend to not be doing that within the inherited language and its structure. Right. They may come up with words that don't make sense to their elders and are and depart from the structure of of the English language. Right. You know, for English speaking children. Um, but it's it's still like works. Right. It's still, you know, there's that like, like makes sense to them. Um, but uh, uh, and again, it's not that it's unrelated to um, uh, to language. Right. Um, but. The true Lamatiave of the Noldor is for them to not just appreciate words, not just to so not just to make up random words, right, and just assert that they mean something, nor to just appreciate the sound of words, but to combine both of those impulses, right? To have the impulse to make words, to acquire word mastery, right? Um, and to indulge it in line with one's own linguistic inclinations, 
right, with one's own individual pleasure in the sound and forms of words, um, but within the context of a complete mastery of the inherited language and its structure, so that they are not just making up their own little private baby languages. They are enriching the language of the Noldor itself based on their own particular Lamatiave. Uh, the word uh, Jocelyn is Lamatiave. Lama, L-A-M-A, Tiave, T-Y-A-V-E, with a circum, well, not a circumflex, with a umlaut. Lamatiave. Um, it's about the, this, remember, is why the language of the Noldor changes so quickly. That's why it changes so much. Um, not because there's just drift in the language over time from one generation to the next, but because the elves themselves, the Noldor themselves especially, are so creative. He makes it, a, it's a part, it's literally a rite of passage, right? The rite of passage for elves, for Noldor, for, for, for Noldor in particular, is that moment when you become sufficiently in tune with your language and you become sufficiently adept and creative within the context of that language that you can make up a name that expresses you and who you are and what you love. Um, that is amazing. That is amazing. Um, Now, Tomas says, um, do elven names always mean something else, or are they simply a combination of sounds that they choose? Uh, well, I guess, Tomas, what I would say is, what is a word that means something but a combination of sounds applied to something, right? I hear what you're saying. Um, and it does seem that they do usually mean something else, but it's not. Remember, the point here is. OK, so imagine, Tomas, just to, to, to put this in simpler terms, right? Imagining that you are giving yourself a name, you know, uh, or receiving a name or giving yourself a name based on something that you like. Right. So it takes you a while. We. It takes you a while to decide what your own proclivities are and what you take most pleasure in and how would you want to define and describe yourself, right? So eventually, you know, you call yourself, I don't know what it is you call yourself, right? Uh, you know, maybe you, you, you have found that like the, like the, the deepest satisfaction that you get in life is in you know, taking care of horses, right? So you're like, my true name is like, you know, horse mother or, or whatever, right? Like that, that's like the name that you choose, right? Um, in a sense, Tomas, it's kind of like that, right? That the name means something, it points to something. But there's a new dimension here with the Noldor, right? And the new dimension is that you are inventing the word that means that thing. Right. So it's not just that you're taking familiar words and putting them together in a combination because that's what describes you. Because you're like, yeah, I'm about horses. That's like, you know, the true heart of me. So I'm going to have a horse name. You know, I'm going to I'm going to use the word horse in my name. No, 
it's your the pattern of sounds within the language that give you the greatest pleasure, that express who you are perfectly. Again, not words, sounds that express you most perfectly. That is when you come up with a name for yourself. This is just something that I... Um, uh, this is something that I just don't... Um, I think... And honestly, I have to admit, I struggle with this because there is there is no way in which I think Tolkien and I personally are more different than in this way. I just don't connect with language in this way. I love language. I take great delight in the sounds and forms of words. I do. But I have none of that impulse that Tolkien had so richly to make them up. I just, I, even as a lifetime Tolkien reader, I have never felt even a brief temptation to ma- invent my own language. I just, this is a confession. I'm not bragging about that. That's a, this is a confession. I'm ashamed of it, but there it is. It's who I am. It's how I think. I don't, I don't do that. Right. And yet he's describing this as being, um, intrinsic to, the Noldor in particular. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sharon says, this would be a fun workshop at Mythmoot. I agree. Find your Lama Tiave. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that would be, that would be a, a very, a very fun Mythmoot workshop. That's a fantastic idea. I love that. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, all right, um, let's let's keep going. I'm running, I'm running quickly out of time. My, I'm falling short of my goal even to get halfway through here. Okay, uh, still thinking about gender stuff. The Eldar hold that apart from ill chances and the destruction of their bodies, they may, in the course of their years, each exercise and enjoy all the varied talents of their kind, whether of skill or of lore, though in different order and in different degrees. With such changes of mind mood or inwisti, their their lamatiaver might also change. So your name, your the particular pattern of like the pleasure that you have in the pattern of languages, it can change as your mind mood changes. Your uh, your your lamatiaver might also change your your self name, right? But such changes or progressions were in fact seen most among the Neri. For the Nisi, so that the, the female, the, it happens most among males. For the Nisi, even as they came sooner to maturity, remained then more steadfast and were less desirous of change. Remember, that's the one primary trend that he said was observable as a difference in, in temper between elvish men and elvish women. According to the Eldar, the only character of any person that was not subject to change was the difference of sex. For this they held to belong not only to the body, Hroa, but also to the mind, Indo, equally, that is, to the person as a whole. This person or individual they often called Esse, that is, name, but it was also called Erde, or singularity, that's like being your essence. Those who returned from Mandos, therefore, after the death of their first body, returned always to the same name and to the same sex as formerly. Right? So this difference in gender, 
um, whether you are male or female, is, Tolkien says, among the Eldar, something that is absolute. Your mind mood changes. And notice that there's one thing kind of thrown out there at the beginning, which is kind of remarkable. They may, in the course of their years, each exercise and enjoy all the varied talents of their kind, whether of skill or of lore. Over the course of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of centuries, you might, your mind might turn itself to everything, not just anything, everything in turn, right? Every pursuit of mind, imagination, and creativity, right? You can turn yourself to, and you likely will turn yourself to, but the one thing that doesn't change uh, is... Um, um, the one thing that doesn't change is their sex. So that even when they come back with a new body, they keep the same sex. Notice again, it's and, and, and he's once more being consistent. It's not about the body determining it for the spirit, right? Those two are, there's a greater coherence between the spirit and the body among elves, right? So it's not a question of you happen to be born with a male body, so you're stuck with a male body. It's you are born with a male spirit, and that doesn't change. Or you are born with a female, and your body is the same, because remember, there's coherence between the two of them there. Um, yeah. Don't worry, David, we're going to get back to the question of rebirth, but probably not today. Um, yeah, okay, let's keep going. These deliberate changes of chosen name were not infrequent. There was another source of the variety of names borne by any one of the Eldar, which in the reading of their histories may to us seem bewildering. This was found in the Anessi, the given or added names. Of these... So, this is Tolkien admitting, I realize that this element of the Silmarillion might be confusing, where you're told what somebody's name was, and then they keep getting new names added to them. Kind of annoying, isn't it? Let me explain. Of these, the most important were the so-called mother names. Mothers often gave to their children special names of their own choosing. Remember, the father name is the first name that's announced, right? When the baby's born, the father announces the name and uh, often gives the name. Right. But at the very least announces it, though sometimes, it, you know, as, as he says, the mothers have input to that first name as well. But the first name is the father name. But then the mothers also give this special name. Mothers often gave to their children special names of their own choosing. The most notable of these were the names of insight, esse terkenye, or of foresight, apakenye. In the hour of birth or on some other occasion of moment, the mother might give a name to her child indicating some dominant feature of its nature as perceived by her or some foresight of its special fate. These names had authority and were regarded as true names when solemnly given and were public, not private, if placed, as was sometimes done, immediately after the father name. So these aren't secret names, but these are regarded as true names. And, of course, the most famous example of a mother name in this context is Feanor. Right? Feanor was the mother name. His dad calls him Kurufinwe. Right? 
but his mom calls him Theanor, uh, Spirit of Fire. Exactly, Veronica. That's just exactly it. Now, again, remember, it's not this passage that comes first. Feanor was, like, I think Muriel's giving that name to Feanor is a big part of what caused this passage, rather than the other way around, right? Um, but it becomes uh, a really important... Um, uh, it becomes a really important piece of cultural context here, right? Notice that the mother is given particular insight, right? Um, prophecy, in a sense. Foresight, even. Um, insight or foresight are both characterized as being more, indic- more common among mothers. There's another story, I think, that probably we should be thinking of. Um, I think I can think of another story that seems to me to lie behind this, but it's not an Eldar story. Um, and I'm here thinking about the conversation that we are told between Gilrein's parents, right? Remember, it was Gilrein's mom who said, no, I really think we should let them marry, right? Because she had insight there. Um, and of course, turned out to be not only insightful, but in fact, foresighted. General footnote. Remember what we were looking at in the last couple classes about those passages where Tolkien seems to be going back and going out of his way to add women to the old Silmarillion story, still not altering the old stories. So all the main stories about all the main men remained the same, um, and yet in lists and things, he was going way far out of his way to add wives and daughters, right, to the name lists and to the, um, uh, and to the passage describing families and things like that. Um, I, th- and I think it's very interesting um, that he is emphasizing gender equality, as much as he is. Um, and indeed, here, if anything, he's giving special wisdom and insight to the mothers rather than to the fathers um, in this whole situation. Um, okay. Uh, out of time. One more. We'll end with this and then we'll pick up here next time. This the Eldar mean when they speak of their spirits consuming them. And they say that ere Arda ends, all the elf folk will have become spirits no less than those in Mandos, invisible to mortal eyes, unless they will to be seen. The words, this is a a note from Christopher, the words, no less than those in Mandos, stood in B as typed, but were heavily struck out. Okay, so he is, his first impulse here is to say, I mean, it sounds like he's saying by the time the elves get to the end of Arda, they're going to be just like the spirits in Mandos, right? Um, that all there will be this like, you know, right now there are some elves that have bodies and some who don't in Mandos, right? But by the end of Arda, all of the elves are going to be in the same place. He emphatically crossed that out, right? Um uh, emphatically crossed that out, he says. Uh, heavily struck out. But it still does, I think, show us 
how what this fading means, right? It gives us a little bit more helping us to understand how he's kind of conceptualizing. He doesn't want that to be literally true, right? It's not like the proa don't matter. And I come back to uh, Josiah, was it you? Somebody earlier on was talking about um, uh, was talking about how it's not that they won't have bodies at all anymore at the end, but that the bodies that, or that they won't be immaterial, but the, the bodies are, uh, I forget. Somebody was talking, was talking like this. Um, um, yeah. That it's not necessarily that they have no bodies, but that their bodies are just very different. And if you guys are, uh, thinking about out of the silent planet here, so am I, right? Uh, I, I shall make your body of your, your body into a body of a different movement, right? I find myself starting to use that language accidentally. Um, exactly. So that first, but the first impulse, Maria, exactly as you say, the body vanishes so much that it's a hundred percent spirit and zero percent body after fading. And then he's like, yeah, okay, no, it's not exactly that. Right. But it's clearly like that in some way. Right. Um, so when we, and this, I think is an interesting thing. This is to me the most, as I say, to me, the, 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 the most fascinating single issue in the entire uh, laws and customs among the elder. Again, for me personally, is this whole, this issue of the relationship between the body and the spirit. Right. Um, and this seems to me like the, the locus of Tolkien's imagination of how elves are different from men. Right. That seems to me to be the core of the issue there. Right. Um, but the thing that's to me most fascinating is on the one hand, you can say coherence, you can say mastery. Right. You can say the way that elves and men are different is that uh, elves, body and spirit work together real nicely. And men are in this internal war between their bodies and spirits all the time. Men are subject to their bodies in ways that the elves just aren't. Right. So it seems like. Men live in this internal war and elves live in this internal peace, right? That would be one way to characterize the differences that he's describing. And yet the business about consuming suggests that that's exactly not the case. That in fact, there is a long-term, I don't want to say conflict, but ultimately there is a price to be, to be born for the mind, which is born by the body. Um, the body is going to go away. The body is going to get used up eventually. Um, so that there is a kind of, not conflict, but... Hmm, I don't want to say competition, because that, that that's not the right thing. Um, but one continues at the expense of the other, right? Um, it's not just that they are in permanent peace together. Um, yeah, Josiah, okay, Josiah, great, that was you. Um, you were wondering whether he meant that the body becomes a material that is so thoroughly under the will of its fea that it cannot be unwillingly observed, right? Perhaps, except it seems to be not voluntary invisibility that he's describing. It's not just that they gain the ability to make themselves invisible, uh, it's that they barely have the ability to make themselves visible anymore. Their bodies themselves... Again, that's where I come back to the consumed metaphor that he started with and keeps keeps recurring to, 
right? Um, anyway, more on this next time. So I think it's unlikely we're going to get more than further along in, or I'm going to hope to finish the, uh, uh, the laws and customs of the Eldar next time, but um, no regrets. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. This stuff is awesome. Isn't this stuff awesome? This is really fascinating. Uh, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do that next time. Um, so yeah, t- don't, don't push yourself to it. If you're behind in the reading, plenty of time to catch up, right? Uh, we're going to keep doing the laws and the customs uh, among the elder next time. I still have, um, yeah, plenty. Like 13 more slides. Yeah, I didn't quite get halfway through tonight. So that's where we are. All right. Thanks, everybody. I will see you guys next week for more Hroa and Fea action. Thanks, everybody. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.